Yeah, it is. Uh, I know a lot of people have been getting hit hard lately, and God's still doing uh, just an awesome work, you know, in, in so many lives. We got to get together with a number of the youth last night and just give some, some good guidance, you know, going forth over the next year. And it was just a wonderful time. Um, we had a lot of uh, a lot of young guys and girls there uh, doing some fun stuff. So it was really cool. And one of the things that's great is to see other young men share in truth and share people uh, what they're going to be going what they're really going to be going after in terms of, are you going to be going after what the world offers or are you going to be going after what Christ offers? And that really is the most important question that we are going to ask. Now, I want to turn to Acts chapter 20 uh, right now because I believe that when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to the Bible, over and over again, when we have questions, no matter what it may be, we can find the answers in Scripture. Over and over and over again, we can go back to the scripture and find those answers. And when we find those answers outside of scripture that do not coincide and relate to scripture, we find ourselves going after and reaching after darkness, ultimately. Instead of looking at our authority that, that Christ has given us in his word. And if there's one thing, and no matter who it is that I've had the privilege of teaching, no matter if it's online or, or in front of my friends or just simply sharing with somebody, if there was one thing that I would love to encourage every believer in, that is knowing and loving the written word of God that he has given us. It is so vitally important for us as believers to know what God's word says because God has spoken. That is one of the most important things so that when we talk about, well, what about this situation? What about this worldview situation? We always need to go back to what has God already said on the matter because once God has said it, my opinion doesn't matter anymore. In fact, the Bible is very clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that I need to take every thought, every single thought that comes into my mind, I need it captive. I need it chained to the obedience of Christ. I need to make sure that what I'm thinking is in line with who Christ is, what his word says. That's the most important thing for us. And in Acts chapter 20, and I want to give a little bit of a background here on Acts chapter 20, not only who wrote the book, not only who is speaking here, but I, I want to talk a little bit about background because one of the dangerous things that somebody may do when reading the Bible is to take this a text anytime out of its context and making it a pretext to just teach whatever you want to teach. And that's not what we want to do. What we want to, what we want to do is whenever we're looking at a scripture, at any time, at any place, we want to make sure that we're saying, okay, Lord, what is the overall context? Because we want to do what we call in theology exegesis, right? We want to take and look and say, God, what do you mean from this text? And what can I read in the context to understand what you're trying to say to me, right? One of the most dangerous questions uh, that, that just just coughs up heresy in the modern study, uh, Bible study is typically the question is, what does this text mean to you? And the fact is, is that it doesn't really matter what it means to you. The fact is, it matters what God means and what he is trying to say to us. And it's so unbelievably, I can't even say how important it is that we say, God, what do you have in your word? And what does it say? Because you have spoken. It's not sifting, it's not shadows, it's not I wonder, it's God has spoken and I get to read his word and see what he says. And so Acts chapter 20, this background is really interesting because 
In the book of Acts, it was written by Luke. And Luke wrote the gospel according to Luke, and then he wrote the book of Acts. And one of the cool things when it comes to reading through Luke is we get to see where he begins and ends because Luke is a chronological writer. He talks about this in the very first verses that he wrote down in scripture in Luke chapter one. In fact, I'll read them. In Luke chapter one, he says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It, from, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that have been taught. Now, this text is vitally important for a number of people. A lot of people have different means by which they share the gospel. And I know for myself, a lot of times we go out and share the gospel, we love to tell people, hey, you know what? You should check out the book of John, right? This is a great book to get an understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, why he had to die on the cross, right? It makes a lot of sense. The, the gospel of John is really easy to understand. It really, really is. And when you look at the Gospel of John, it actually tells us in John 20, 31 that it was written specifically that you may believe and have life in Jesus' name. So the entire book, when we look at the Gospel of John, the writer actually tells us this is written ultimately to bring people to know Christ. So yes, it's a great account to give to share the Gospel. But I've always loved giving Luke out, especially if I'm sharing the gospel with a skeptic, because I myself was once a skeptic. I myself, at, at one point in time, eventually, because of my own sinful nature, decided to turn into atheism and became an agnostic and no longer believed that I was accountable to a creator. But it was actually looking at the data and not simply looking at internet memes and nonsense said on TikTok that led me to the reality that Jesus Christ really did die, Jesus, Jesus Christ really was buried, and Jesus Christ really did raise on the third day according to the scriptures, and he did this not in some weird hut, not looking inside of a hat with a rock in the bottom to write down scriptures. That's what Mormonism teaches, by the way. Uh, not that I have special goggles that I can read Egyptian hieroglyphics. Not I have a special message. Not I'm going up to a mountain and I'm gonna be squeezed by this angel thinking that I'm demon possessed and eventually I'm going to recite and that's gonna become the Quran. No, none of that. When Jesus died, he died a public death on a public cross with a sign over his head so you knew why that person was dying so that you wouldn't commit those crimes. So when he went up there to that cross to die that horrible death, Death, they would look at him and say, I never want that to happen to me. What was his crime? And his crime was what? He was king of the Jews. That's all his crime was. He had no crime because he committed no deceit. No, nothing was found in his lips. Nothing. They had nothing on him. But all of this was done in public. In fact, when we read in Acts chapter one, it talks about his resurrection as well. Now remind you, it's very interesting because we look at Luke and we see him writing, we see him writing Luke and we see him writing Acts. Some argue that he probably wrote Hebrews off of a sermon by Paul. You know, people have different agreements and disagreements. Either way, I know that God is one who ultimately wrote it. But nonetheless, when I see these two together, you see them kind of like a sequel. And it's interesting because in Luke's gospel, if you remember, it actually ends in Jerusalem. That's where Luke's gospel ends. But then when you look in the book of Acts, it actually ends in Rome. And it's very interesting because this is exactly, 
and precisely what the gospel, what we're told that the gospel would do, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, right? This is exactly what was promised by Jesus. This is exactly what was promised by Paul, that first it was to the Jews and then it was to the Gentiles. Because when we read the book of Acts, the sequel to Luke, we see that it ends in Rome, to the Gentiles. That promise that Jesus gave them, that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that they would go out from Judea, that promise is fulfilled in the book of Acts. And what's amazing when you read these books together in concert, which I believe they're supposed to be read together, when you read them in concert, you see this exact thing happening. And in fact, some in the early church, when it came to the book of Acts, okay, a lot of people were like, oh, we, the Acts of the Apostles, that makes sense. A lot of people actually called it the gospel of the Holy Spirit, because ultimately you see the Holy Spirit over and over again doing miraculous things. And what did Jesus promise the Holy Spirit would do? It would testify of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what happens continuously in the book of Acts, the, the continuous testifying of the name of Jesus Christ. There is no name, no other name that you can be saved, can be saved only through Jesus Christ. And we get that in the book of Acts. And here's what it says. In the same way he died publicly, he also rose again publicly. This was not some hidden event. It says in Acts chapter one, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he, he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. This very Jesus that we worship didn't just do this in private. It was a public matter. In fact, even in Corinth, a wicked, wicked place, right? A wicked, wicked place, place at that time. They worshiped, not, they worshiped false gods. They even worshiped uh, working out and how, how muscular someone was and so forth. And this wicked place with all their paganism, this wicked place, this is the place where Jesus appeared. He says he appeared to over 500 of you in Corinth. Eyewitnesses, many of which when that letter was written, 1 Corinthians, were still alive, although some had passed. And we see this over and over again when you read the Gospel of John, whether you read Luke, over and over again, truth is what God cares about. Truth over and over again, making sure that we know that Jesus Christ is risen, that we know all of the miracles that he did, he said, if you don't trust me, trust my miracles. All of the miracles he did, everything that he did, all of it culminated on that resurrection when Jesus Christ would die and raise again. All of it. The linchpin of the Christian faith, everything that we believe, the reason why we come and meet together is because on the first day of the week, not some hidden thing, not some secret thing, on the first day of the week, Jesus rose publicly and did this over a course of 40 days and 40 nights, eating and drinking after they watched him die. That's my Jesus, and that's why I believe in the Christian faith. That's why I believe in the Bible. And the same person who wrote down a lot of this stuff, including if you've read the Gospel of Mark, most people believe, and it's been said quite clearly, that it's ultimately Peter's Gospel with Mark writing it down. And Peter, over and over again, even in his letters, would talk about specifically when it comes to the Word of God, this is where he would also put his linchpin. This is where he would also get his standard, right? And if anybody... If anybody in history could say, you know what, I saw this vision, I saw this thing, this thing happened, and so now I can trust this, it'd be Peter. 
But this is what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 16 to 21. He says that they didn't follow cleverly devised tales. They didn't have to do it. They didn't have to look and wonder, and, and, and I wonder if Jesus really did raise from the dead. I wonder if he really did go on the Mount of Transfiguration. I really wonder if these things happened. He said, no, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. We were eyewitnesses to his glory when they went up to the holy mountain. And it specifically is mentioning what took place on the Mount of Transfiguration where before Jesus rose up two men, Moses and Elijah, and then Peter himself, think about this, right? Everyone always wants to hear from God. Everyone always wants to hear from God. I, 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 even people that are desperate, people that are whatever, they want to hear from the one true God. And he actually did. This is my son, listen to him. Peter heard the voice of the Lord. And then he says in 2 Peter, the same Peter who heard the voice of the Lord, the same Peter who was an eyewitness to his majesty, the same Peter who saw the miracles that Jesus did, the same Peter who saw the risen king said this, I know of a word more sure. I know of a word more sure. And it's right here. It's the scriptures. The same word he uses there to describe scripture that no scripture is some interpretation of man, but holy men of God wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The same word used for scripture there is used in 2 Peter chapter 3, just later in the book, to describe Paul's writings as the same thing, graphe, scripture. So we look at this and we see the weight that he puts on it. We see the weight that he puts on scripture so that we say, when I have an opinion, I need to back it up with chapter and verse, right? When I start going off to the left and to the right, it's because I am not staying straight on the word of God. And I say this all because when we get to the book of Acts, chapter 20, and as I said, we're going to start about verse 17. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is giving the only sermon and teaching that's actually given to the Christian church in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you see them over and over again, preaching at the synagogues, that was Paul's custom. He would go and debate uh, in, in Tyrannus, and he would go in the hall of Tyrannus, he would go all these places, right? Preaching to the Greeks, he goes to Athens, he preaches against the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, right? He preaches the gospel over and over again, all over the place. And this, Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17, is the only, the only place where we see him actually preaching in the book of Acts to the church. So I want to read it because I think this is important. If there's one time in the book of Acts that we get a sermon to the church, then we're the church and we should read it. Amen? It says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourself know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How did I not, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me stop there. It's really interesting here because Paul actually didn't want to go to Asia, so he actually goes around them and goes over to Miletus, but then calls those in Asia there, in Ephesus, to come to him. He calls specifically the elders there. It's really interesting because in this sermon here, 
that Paul's going to give, he uses three different terminologies for elder or pastor, shepherd, or overseer. All right, just three different types. All right, the Greek words for elder is presbyteros. I'm sure I'm butchering the, the sound there, but nonetheless, the, and you know what, Alexander conquered things so fast that that vast region speaking Greek, it's really hard to actually know exactly how things are pronounced because just like we're here in America and if you talk to somebody down south, they may sound a little bit different than we sound over here, right? Amen. And when Alexander conquered all that region in such a fast, fast way, they were all coming from different dialects and then they were all speaking Greek. It sounded a little weird, I'm sure. You got agape, agapao, right? You got all these different ways to say it. But nonetheless, um, the elder, though, that term that we see used over and over again, it's used uh, in Titus 1, 5 through 9 to give the qualifications of an elder. And that terminology that's used, that was typically a Jewish community uh, usage because the Jewish community would respect elders and that was why that term was used. The other one that we'll see later used in this, and these next two are used in the same verse actually, is overseer or episkopos. And you might have heard of the Episcopalian church. It's pretty much heretical, but nonetheless, that's where the, that's where the term comes, or bishop, right? Uh, overseer, and that's more from the Greek community. And then you have the shepherd, the humanos, right? And that's more for the rural community of people that would understand that region. So one of the things I love about scripture over and over again is that when you read it, when you see scripture over and over again applied, it speaks to every person in every culture, no matter what. It speaks to the slave or the free man, the rich and the poor, right? It speaks to every single person, no matter who they are. And it's amazing because Paul uses this so they will they describe the same thing. Three different ways to describe the same person and the same functions that they should have. Whether they are an elder, overseer, or shepherd. It's all one. And it, and it makes up what somebody is who is looking over the church, who is also shepherding and making sure that wolves don't get in. And that's going to be a huge portion. And I believe he actually... All three of these are identified here in Acts chapter 20 when he's telling them, identified and actually spoken on and exegeted about how all three of those names that you're going to hear describing the one person is, this is your job and this is how you do it. And I think it's so important and the reason that we see so clearly Paul emphasizing this and, and we're going to talk about why he's emphasizing this and why this is so important and all of this is because of how important it will be going forward with the church. How important it would be that the church, and I mean not just the church in Ephesus there, right? There are terminologies that are specific to those churches. You can't be, read the book of Revelation and not recognize that there were different churches, right? Ecclesia. But there's also a universal church like Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus says that he will build his ecclesia and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So there are times where churches use specific for the church of Philadelphia, the church of Laodicea, right? Those Two churches did not have the same message, right? Because those were local bodies. But there is also times where the same word is used to describe the universal church as in uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. So the, these are important things to understand about how God uses these and, and understand how God is going to use this message to the church of Ephesus ultimately for every single one of us in our church bodies to, to know how important it is to stick to the word of God. Uh, he said, I did not shrink 
from declaring to you anything that was profitable, back to Acts chapter 20, and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he talks about going from house to house, and I find this to be something that is really, really important. The intimate nature of being in someone's house and sharing the truth of God's word with them. This it has become somewhat of a lost art, right? We, we forget this. We just had such a, a blessed time, and I know a lot of the people here were in Texas with us, and it was amazing because Pastor Joe was there, and, and we were all sitting around with a number of people from Texas that were just wanting to hear the word and wanting to hear specific doctrines and, hey, how does this work? And, you know, what's the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And there was a ton of different questions that took place, and we sat there in a house and sharing truth and it was something that was so beautiful because it was something that was so biblical. Because did Paul preach all over the place? Everywhere he stood, he went and preached the gospel, even when they told him not to, right? You're fine, you can be released, just don't preach that Jesus. All right, I'm gonna go right back and preach Jesus, right? And so when we see that over and over again, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's awesome to watch, but also those things that we didn't see when he was going in house to house and sharing truth with people. People that would, I'm sure, become stalwarts in the Christian faith, especially at its edifice, right at the beginning of the Christian faith, knowing what Christ's word says, knowing who Jesus is through his word, going house to house and preaching them publicly. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that the bonds and afflictions await me. This, this verse is so powerful, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Now, when you see Paul say, say this here, he uses this same terminology when he gives his living eulogy, when he knows he is about to die and he is writing Timothy and I absolutely love that text, and, and I want to read from it a little bit later. But I love that text because what's going on here was going on with Timothy when he wrote him as well. And he said the same thing. I've finished my course. He knows it's imminent. He is going to die. He is going to be killed. It's not going to simply just be beaten and thrown out. It's not going to be flogged and released anymore. It is coming to a place where his life is going to end and he knows and will express in this text that this is the last time he's going to see those in Ephesus. So I ask you guys, and this is a, a question I think about all the time. If you had one letter to write someone and you knew that was going to be it, you were going to go and be with the Lord, whether that person was believing or non-believing, what would you say to them? What would you encourage the church with? What would you encourage your friends with? What would you encourage your family with? What would you encourage your neighbor that doesn't like you with? What would you write to them? This is it. My end is coming. Would it be the time that you complained about something? You know that one birthday you had, you know? You really didn't give, send me a thank you card after I gave you that gift, you know? Would you tell, would you tell your mom, oh, you know, it was nice living under your roof and stuff, but sometimes you were mean to me. Or would you do 
everything in your power to make sure that person was right with the living God? Would you do everything in your power with every last stroke of the pen or last typing on your fingers to beg them and plead them, God bless you, to be conformed to the image of God? Would beg them and plead them to give their life and everything in it to Jesus Christ? It's so sad that so often it's when somebody really does know there is a a ticking clock and we have that realization that maybe this life is going to end, that all of a sudden now they're like, this is what I wanna do and I I wanna get this done and I wanna get that done. But so often we don't recognize that God is the one who holds our breath in his hand and we may not have that second chance, right? You know, I was thinking about this a lot because Paul was talking about his own personal testimony here. And he's, he's talking about how, hey, you saw me from the very beginning. You know exactly how I walk. And I was thinking about this because we talked last night and uh, some of the, some of the, uh, the leaders uh, for the youth were saying, hey, you know, you never know, you know, uh, how quickly this life can go. And some of the people you have around you in school and so forth, you think, oh, they'll be around, you know, 50, 60 years. They'll be around forever. And they pass away. And, you know, Holly asked me, she said, how many of your friends, Chad, have already passed away since high school? I said, probably 20 or so uh, people. We just had our 10 year anniversary a couple years ago. And I was like, I was like, wow, that's kind of, that's really sad, that's really heartbreaking. And I remember it was really interesting because I went to two funerals back, back to back uh, for two friends. One of them died in, in a car accident. Uh, actually, both of them died in a car accident. Both of them died in a car accident. Uh, one was on his way to school, the other was, was leaving a bar going to another girl's house with his wife. And I went to the one funeral and I was praying and, and I, I, I literally, I fasted and I prayed and I was a really pretty new believer, I think maybe like eight or nine months. But I prasted, fasted and prayed and I said, Lord, please, there's these texts on my heart. And you know, maybe I was a little arrogant as a young believer, you know, thinking I know exactly the text this pastor needs to share from, you know. And I was praying and, and I was reading Ecclesiastes at the time and I just remember thinking like, man, there's eternity in their hearts. Like there's gonna be my friends that I partied with for all those years as a non-believer and they're gonna be there. And it would be so awesome if he told them, hey, I know that there's eternity on your hearts. You know there's something after this life. You can suppress it, but God has placed it there for a reason. And I was just praying about it. Lord, please, if he could say that and if he could just mention, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, the, the resurrection, that it wasn't something done in secret, but it was done in public. And I prayed and I fasted and I got to that funeral and that's what the message was on. And I was like, this is amazing, you know. I don't know how you guys are. When I first came to Christ, I thought every message was about me. I thought every, every single thing, not realizing that the Holy Spirit does work that way. I do believe that. But as a child in, in the faith, which I still am, praise God, but as a very, very infantile uh, child in the faith, I thought everything was about me. And I thought, but God really did use that. And I thought it was amazing. And actually, uh, one of the guys that was at the funeral uh, I ended up sharing the gospel with him a few months later, and he did actually give his life to Christ and has been following ever since. And so I was like, man, I really do believe the Lord used it. And then I went to a funeral right after that, a few months later, and I get to the funeral, and this is a friend of mine who I know very well. I know he rejected the gospel, and I know the circumstances of his death, and none of it looked good. And that doesn't mean I know, and I'm, and I'm the final judge, because the Bible is very clear, love hopes all things. So I don't have to be the final judge. I let God do that, ultimately. But I'm also not going to sit there and tell you I know for a fact where he is and he's with the Lord. But this pastor at a different church at the time 
uh, went up there and gave that exact message. If you want to get to heaven, you got to love like he loved and you'll get there. That's what he said. And I sat there and I was, I, I was broken because I was so excited. I was like, same thing's going to happen. This guy loves the Lord. He's going to preach a message. And I'm like, no, all my friends there think this gospel of love, which is what? Because he hugged people a lot? That's not love. We get the definition of love, not only in 1 Corinthians 13, but if you just replace love with Jesus in 1 Corinthians 13, you'd see it over and over and over again because that's who Jesus is. Because it doesn't say that God loves. It says that God is love. It's in his very essence. That's who he is. He is love. And I'm like, this is fake. This is phony. It's not real. And it broke my heart. But sadly, I say that uh, to tell more of a sad story alongside of the original uh, person who, pastor who I went to the funeral and I heard that message and I was so excited because a few months later I was at the gym with my old buddy Chad and we were lifting and I saw the pastor who had given that message and him and two other friends and they were wearing Christian shirts and I was like, oh man, I want to tell him how much that meant to me. That'd be really awesome. And I went to go walk over with my buddy uh, Chad, and when we walked over, all of them were cussing and laughing at an uh, inappropriate joke. And I looked at Chad, he looked at me, and we both kind of just shook our heads and went back to our workout. But one of the things that it just stuck out to me was that was not Paul, right? Because I thought about that. I thought about that a lot. You know, you're a young believer, you're excited, you look up to somebody in the faith and you see that and you're like, man, that really stinks, you know, that that happened. But then I looked at Paul and what he said over and over again. Not that he was perfect, right? Not that he was perfect, but he said in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's a huge thing. And here he said, my life is open to you. You saw my conduct. You saw how I was. And we should all have that in our hearts to live that way. They shouldn't be hearing you foul mouth telling disgusting jokes that God hates. No. Every word that comes out of your mouth should not be unwholesome, according to Ephesians chapter 4. Right? But it should be for edification. It should be for building up. It's so important that we recognize our conduct and how it affects people. Jesus Christ told the Pharisees very clearly that you are keeping people from the kingdom of God and you yourself shall not enter. Your conduct, your actions, and all these things that you do and the way you act and present yourself, especially if you're in a role of overseer, and the way you present yourself in that way, they have a major, major effect on people. This is why Paul in, in Ephesians, writing to the same very church that he gave this message to, Gave them a message over and over again of how to sit, walk, and stand. You're seated on heavenly places. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. It's so important that we recognize that, that we see it, and that we see that conduct should be our own. And that is what is beautiful about sanctification. As you grow in Christ, you grow more and more and more like Jesus. Right? We shouldn't look at it and people, I've, I've talked to people. Yeah, I used to share the gospel a lot. I used to read the Bible a lot. I'm like, what, what stopped you? It's really weird when I read the scriptures because people become more and more like Jesus, not less and less when they become sanctified. I had a conversation one time um, and it was, about, it was about music. 
And I was telling them, you know, I, I have a tough time, and this is, my, this is my personal conviction, I have a tough time with worship music that I can't tell if they're talking about their girlfriend, right? I'm like, is that Jesus, or are you talking about, you know, a sloppy wet kiss with your girlfriend? What's going on here? Like, I don't understand this. And so I said, I, I just turn that stuff off, and I find specific songs that I believe glorify the Lord. And I was like, that, that's what I like to sing. And I had this person look at me and say, yeah, I remember when I was like that. You know, but now I realize God can speak to me, you know, through a secular song too, you know, and through this, that, and the other. It's like, well, God can speak to you through a donkey as well. Um, but you don't see me looking around for Eeyore for spiritual guidance, you know. And, and that's a reality. Like, I, I wouldn't do that. And the fact is, is that we should be growing more and more like Jesus, not less and less because now we're comfortable. I think God really likes us uncomfortable. It's not comfortable to walk up to someone and say, hey, how's it going? My name's Chad. And by the way, if you died today, you're probably going to be in hell, right? That's not comfortable. I don't say it that way, praise God. But, but nonetheless, it, it's not comfortable because that conversation needs to happen. But we were talking about that with the young group last night. And one of the things we talked about is, you know, a lot of times people are walking by and, and whatever you walk by them, you don't think anything of it. It's, it's whatever. But then you think to yourself, oh man, I, I, if I started talking to them, you know, about Jesus or something, it'd be really uncomfortable. You know, if I started telling them uh, about Jesus, like I may make Jesus look bad or I, I, you know, I'd feel really uncomfortable. Maybe I just don't know enough to, to say something to that person. And if you notice all of those statements outside of the maybe I'll look, make Jesus look bad, all outside of the, those statements are all me, 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 right? Because you're embarrassed that you, you, your, your pride gets to you and you go, oh, I don't know. I, I you know, I, I don't know enough about the Bible. I'll tell you this. In John chapter four, Jesus went to the woman at the well. And this was a woman who was, and Jesus called her out for her sin. I don't know why people read that text and don't say that. He calls her out for living with a man who's not her husband. And after he calls her out, she goes, are you the Messiah? And he tells her that he's the Messiah. And what does she do? She goes back to Samaria and she preaches what she knows. It's not much. It is not much. When she tells them, he's just like, hey, this guy told me everything I ever did. That's, that's all. That, is it not the Messiah? This is all I, this is all I got. And guess what? That presentation of truth was met with Jesus going there and them saying, now we believe because you have come. And what is our duty in sharing the gospel other than that, right? What is your duty? The Bible says very clearly, in fact, when there was some, some tension there in 1 Corinthians chapter three with Paul and the, writing to the people, they're like, well, I'm of Apollos and I'm of Paul. And he's like, one plants, one waters, but God ultimately causes the growth. They don't have to believe because you have a really good argument for Jesus because that's not biblical. A really good argument for Jesus is not what gets them into the kingdom. Yes, you should be able to defend your faith rightly and by the word of God, but ultimately it says that the power of salvation is in the gospel, that's where the power is, right? The dudamus, the dynamite power is in the gospel. It's not because you're able to know all these apologetics and have all these things and have all this. I got, I got this for this argument and this for this argument. And that, does that mean not to equip ourselves? Absolutely not. That'd be unbiblical too. But not sharing until you're right and ready to do it, that you'll never be right and ready to do it. 
you won't be perfect on this side. Because the Bible actually says, and this is for believers, I don't care if it's pastors, elders, teachers, you see through the glass darkly. And the only thing that is hindering from, the gospel, from sharing the gospel is the enemy and your own pride. And we need to get out there and love people enough to share the truth with them, right? Sorry, that took off on a tangent that I did not want to do. But, uh, but I want to get back to the text in Acts chapter 20. It says, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God or the full counsel of God. In other places, he says the kindness and the severity of God. You see, if all we sit up here and do is talk about promises, we're not giving the full counsel of God to people. And if all we sit up here and preach are the damnation text, we're not giving the full counsel of God. We need to be able, as Paul did here, declaring the whole purpose, the whole counsel of God, very, very clear that we need both. So many people forget that the same Jesus that called people brood of vipers, which he did, children of the devil, which he did, also said, come all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. That's kindness and severity, and that's from our king. If anyone showed kindness and severity, it was Jesus Christ himself over and over again. And we are to be what? Sanctified more and more conformed, squeezed into the mold of Jesus Christ and not the mold of the world. We want to make sure that we're more and more like Jesus, preaching the full counsel of God, making sure we're more and more like, even like Paul, like he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We should look at that and say, I want to be more like that. I don't want to, oh wow, I saw a really cute tattoo on Katy Perry, that's what I want. Oh man, you see Tom Brady, he wins all those Super Bowls and practices witchcraft right there. Uh, where's Big Jim? Uh, you know, he, I, I want to be just like him, right? No, I want to be just like Jesus. It's not just a fad. It's not just a wrist bracelet. It's what the Bible says. It says if you are in Christ, then you are being conformed into the image of his son. That's what the Bible says. And the Bible is right. That's what we want. We don't want to go halfway. Remember what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. To love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, or as it was replied back, your understanding, with all your strength. Everything that is in your being to love Jesus. And that will put you in a place where you can then follow that second commandment that he talks about. To love your neighbor as yourself. When you have a proper relationship with Jesus Christ and you love God with everything in your being, then you can react in a way that now loves your neighbor. You no longer have a selfish deceit of a relationship with the outside world. You no longer have a selfish deceit with your friends. So many of friendships so often in the world, and I was there for Man, I'm all, it's almost halfway of my life. I'm getting older every year, I guess. But um, I was there for many years. Every one of those was what kind of advantage can I get out of this relationship? Whether it was, you know, girlfriend-boyfriend relationship, 
It's typically to gain a sexual advantage. Rather, it is a, a friendship that maybe they provide something for you, whether it's a ride to somewhere, paying for your stuff, or simply not being alone and having some company. Not recognizing so clearly that when we have a relationship with Christ, then I love my brother or sister in Christ if they give me nothing. It means nothing to me what they can offer, but I want to owe them a debt of love completely and genuinely, that I love that person no matter what, that is my key ingredient to my life that I pour out the fruits of the Spirit that have been given me freely by the Lord to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I do that in a relationship, walking arm in arm with my brethren in one direction towards Christ. It's so unbelievably important. Now, I want to go back to this text because these are some of my favorite texts in all of Scripture here in Acts chapter 20. Remember, he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God or the whole counsel of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all of your flock. He's going back to that terminology of a shepherd watching after people, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So now he's identified all three of the properties of being a proper elder, pastor, overseer. Making sure, keeping watch over, overseeing. Making sure if you see some, a wolf coming in, you put down your staff and you say, no, you're not welcome, right? Making sure over and over again when you see a sheep going astray that you say, no, let's get back into the fold. Remember that it's in Hebrews chapter three that it tells us that if we see our brethren, we need to look at our brethren and if we see them being carried away by the deceitfulness of sin, we need to bring them back before they are carried away by that deceitfulness. That's to brethren. That's not to lost people. Lost people aren't carried away. They're already away. But then we also see in James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, quite clearly, that if a brother, brethren, any among you does fall from the truth, and one brings him back, you save his suke, his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It's not just saving his flesh, it's making sure and recognizing this person is now lost and I want him to be found. I want him back in the fold. And how do we do that? By preaching the full counsel of God, bringing this back to him. By doing what Matthew 18 says, and according to Jesus, that we see somebody in sin, we take it to them one-on-one. -on -one. I love you, bro, but I, I drove by, I saw you at that bar, I saw you drinking. I'm wondering what's going on. I saw you in a car with somebody you shouldn't have been with, right? You take them to a one-on-one, -on -one, but they won't listen, take another brother or two with you. Then you take it to the church. All of that is for one purpose. People think, oh, we got a Matthew 18 them. Like it's a, a you know, like, like I just gotta get them. You know, I gotta get them out of here. But no, it's all for reconciliation. You've won your brothers, what it says. And I wanna win my brothers when they're, when they're lost and when they're going outside of the fold. And we do that by declaring the whole counsel of God to shepherd the church of God. There's that shepherd term there, humanas, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So once again, what we see here, I love this text. First of all, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, this just ends it. I'm, I'm sorry. The 2028s, that's what I call them. Not the year. Uh, I'm not a date predictor or anything like that. But the 2028s, John 2028 and Acts 2028. Those two texts, if somebody's Jehovah's Witness, it's, I'm sorry, you can't be read and read those texts. And that includes in their own false translation, by the way. Um, 
And when you look at these texts, it's really interesting because you have Jesus with Thomas and he says, touch and see that I'm flesh and blood. Feel me. Which by the way, Jehovah's Witness teach that he rose in spirit, not in flesh. Touch and see that I'm flesh and blood. And then what he cries out to him, what Thomas cries out to Jesus is, ho kyrios mu kai ho theos mu. Kyrios is Lord, ho theos is the God. The Lord of me, mu, the Lord of me and the God of me, right? And then we see here in Acts 20, 28 that Christ died and guess what? That blood that was spilled was what? Shepherd the church of God, which he, who? The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's my Jesus. My God cared enough. That's why it says in Zechariah 12 that in the end times they'll look at him whom they've pierced and they'll grieve bitterly for him because they will look on Ayath. They will look on me whom they've pierced. That's Zechariah. That's Old Testament. Speaking of the one that would die is the Ioth, is the I am. That's Jesus Christ. But here's what he says, because in this next text, in verse 29, in this next text, declaring the whole purpose of God, knowing that Christ died for our sins, knowing that it was God's blood that was purchased for the church, he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And this is, this is probably one of the more sad parts about this. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. You see that? It's interesting in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when Paul goes through all of the different tumults, all the things that went down, him getting beat, shipwrecks, everything that happened. One of the things that's inside of that text that people kind of gloss over is dangers, when he talks about the dangers, is dangers among false brethren. You do not want to be that false brethren. And I don't believe that every person walking into a church or every person walking into maybe a, a Bible study group or so forth thinks I'm going to be a really great wolf. I don't think that's what they think at, at first. I don't think that when Peter was telling Jesus, hey, I'm not going to let you die. I'll die before I let you die, that he thought he was doing the work of Satan. And Jesus literally called him Satan right? So we need to recognize what? What did he start with here? He, the whole counsel, the whole purpose of God, he expresses the word of God in its entirety so that when the wolves come, we can defend. When the wolves come, they can be defended. And they're not going to be defended because you were able to overthrow the seven mountains of cultural influence. They're not going to be defended because you finally get a, a Christian president, right? You are only going to be able to defend the wolves if you know, defend from the wolves, if you know the word of God and you preach the full counsel of it. When you do not do that, we are talking about being ravaged. They will not spare the flock and they'll arise up among you. And I believe that is what takes place when somebody is acting like a shepherd and they're not really a shepherd. You know, it was interesting, Joel Osteen was in the, the news this week. Hundreds of thousands of dollars were found in the walls there. And that doesn't even, that doesn't even count from the hundreds of thousands of dollars that were found on the thieves originally back in 2000, I think 14, somewhere around there. And 
it's so interesting because in Titus 1, 5 through 9, specifically at the end of that portion on what elders are supposed to be and what they're supposed to look like, it says that they need to preach sound doctrine and be able to refute those who do not. Now, I watched Joel Osteen on television, on CNN, say he doesn't believe that it's his job to call out false teachers. It is literally his job if he calls himself a pastor. But in this day and age of self-identifying as whatever you might be, he was just ahead of the game because he is basically a motivational speaker, speaker self-identifying as a pastor. Because if you don't meet the requirements, guess what? You aren't it. I could sit up here all day and tell you I play pro baseball for the Dodgers, but I don't. Or we wouldn't have got second in softball. <laughs> but nonetheless, it's true, guys. It's a reality that we can point them out, but why can I point out that he's not a pastor? Because I have the word of God, which has already declared what a pastor is, and he doesn't meet the requirements. I don't meet the requirements of a Dodgers left fielder. He doesn't meet the requirements of a pastor. And if I sat up here telling you that I did meet those requirements when I didn't, I'm either insane or just a liar. It's really important that we understand that. Let me just back right up. Therefore, be on the alert. Remember, whenever we have therefore, what do we ask? What's the therefore? Therefore. It, it's connective tissue. Therefore, after all these preceding verses, therefore be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Now this is, you imagine this, right? Paul, and I'm just, you know, I, I think about this with people that have grown you in the faith, right? And you knew it was the last time you were gonna see them. It'd be pretty hard. But man, I would wanna know those message. I, I wanna remember that message that they left with me. And this is the message that, they had, that he left with the church of Ephesus. But it's interesting because the book of Revelation, if you go to Revelation chapter two, we get, now this is a number of years later, right? Uh, Revelation, the book is written by the apostle John and according to the early church testimony, it was written in the 90s on the island of Patmos under the reign of Domitian. Um, and we get kind of a historical context of what took place in the church of Ephesus after Paul had left. So now, and this is really cool, I, I really love this because we have this in the word of God and even outside of the word of God, and, and I'm looking at the time, I don't wanna get into it, but 
Um, there's actually letters in the early church, one by Ignatius, who's considered one of the apostolic fathers. So they come right after the apostles. And one of the letters that is written, uh, Polycarp, for example, his letter was written to the Philippian church, uh, the church in Philippi. But Ignatius's letter is actually written to the church of Ephesus. And maybe for reading material, if you guys want to read it, it's very short. It takes about 10 minutes to read. Um, you could look that up, Ignatius's letter to the church of Ephesus. But it's really interesting because we get the historical background here of what took place. So what was Paul warning them about over and over again? He warned them that wolves are going to come. False teachers are going to come. Be ready to defend. Be on guard for your flock. You are shepherds. You are overseers. You are bishops. You are guarding this place with your life. You are guarding these people with your life. Make sure your doctrine is not an error. Make sure that these wolves do not come. So I would say, we're going to read from Revelation chapter 2, that we're going to read some good things about what took place there in Ephesus. But we're going to see that not everything was taken to heart. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. So I would say, if we look at that and we isolate that, God bless you, and we isolate that text, we see, wow, be on guard, be ready. People are going to try to come in with false doctrine. They're going to try to just ravage you. They're not going to spare the flock. Watch out for it. And then we see in the book of Revelation, probably a couple decades later, that's what's happening. They're not allowing this to happen. But even in that, if we don't get the full counsel of God, if we don't have it all together, bad things can take place. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Ouch. If that, outside of the words that say, I never knew you, that Jesus warned against those who say they are with him but don't follow in the Lord's commands, outside of that in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, these words to an entire church would have to just pierce, cut to the quick, uh, as in the biblical terminology, right? Cut to the quick. They had to hurt. You have left your first love. But he, he doesn't end it there. And I love that. He says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him overcomes, I will grant to eat. Oh, I'm sorry. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, this is, this is awesome for a number of reasons. One, because he finishes, or he, he starts and finishes with commendation. He tells them the good things that they're doing. And these are awesome. This is, seems like what, was, what Paul was telling him to do it seems like that's exactly precisely what was going on. They weren't allowing false teaching to just come in. They were like, no, I'm not, we're not putting up with this. 
okay? I, I, I don't even want the deeds of the Nicolaitans, this wicked stuff that they're doing. I, I want this around, and they're doing a good job of that. But they, they left their first love, which is ultimately the most important thing, right? I could have all my doctrines in a row. I could cross every T, dot every I. But if you remember when Paul was giving them that sermon in Acts chapter 20, he said, look at my life. And this is why Paul, when he wrote to Timothy about being a pastor in his pastoral epistle, he told him to watch your life and your doctrine, and in doing so, you will save yourself and those who hear you. Because your lifestyle, the things that you do, the way that you act, the way that you love, have ramifications on how the rest of the body of believers that follow you, that are under your, you being a shepherd, they are going to be affected. I believe with everything in me that this is why Satan loves to attack pastors and when he can't get to them, he attacks their children over and over and over again because he recognizes that once I hurt them, there will be, how many videos do you have to watch online of people being church hurt, right? Where they talk about the terrible things that happened and the pastor was doing this or, or that because he realizes how many people are going to be affected by just this one person falling. This is why you have to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And guess what? This is also why, if you are a congregant, that you can't do what Jeremiah 17 says is a curse and put your trust in man, any man. You can't put your trust in any man. Even Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's so important for us to, to understand and to grasp. And it's interesting because this is not the only time where Paul talks about terrible things are coming. And this is how, this is the anecdote. It's one thing to warn, right? We have plenty of people, you could turn on conservative talk shows all the time, the, the, pretty much the, the end is coming, right? I mean, this is just horrible, the world's gonna end, all, all this stuff. Yeah, that's all true. I read the book of Revelation. That's going to happen, right? I, but guess what? I don't sit and complain about it. I don't whine about it. I look at it, and when I see all these things taking place, what do I say? My redemption draws nigh. I know because I have on the helmet of salvation. I recognize his return and that one day he's going to come. And so guess what? That is ultimately what I always look forward to. That ultimately, no matter what happens to me in this earthen vessel, that I have something greater that is going to come because I have Jesus, because I have him. And so what he does with Timothy here, and we're gonna read from 2 Timothy, starting in chapter three, verse 10, he's going to give him the anecdote for the end times. That's really what he does. And he sets it up. And a lot of these verses, uh, specifically 2 Timothy three sixteen, a lot of these are memory verses. But I love memory verses that when you get the full context of them, it, it brings out so much more truth. They're like a gem. And every time you move it, you just see something more beautiful. And this is exactly what happens when we read 2 Timothy chapter 3, when we know that this is Paul's probably his last letter. When we put that all together and understand this is his living eulogy to the man he's been discipling, to the man he's been handing over to churches. Here, get me some reports back. What's going on over there in Thessalonica? And he comes back and tells him what's going on. This is the guy he's been using over and over again, his faithful servant with him, Timothy. And it says this, now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and suffering, such as happened to me, 
at Antioch, at Iconium, and in Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of all of them, the Lord rescued me. I love that because, yeah, they, it, that's probably not fun, right? Everything that's going on. But ultimately, the Lord rescued him over and over again. But remember, this is his last letter. And so ultimately, he's saying, yeah, I've been rescued over and over again, but this is going to be it. I've finished my race. I've run the course. Indeed, all who desire, wait, what did that all mean? Oh, that all means all. It does in John 3, 16 too. But um, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. And this is why Peter, when he talks, he says, make sure that when you're being persecuted, it's not for something you did wrong. Make sure they're maligning you off of lies. Don't, let, don't do something bad and being like, yeah, I'm being persecuted. Yeah, man, so much persecution come my way. I just beat up that guy at work and now persecution all over the place. It's like, no, you're, you're probably the problem and you need to fix it. Go say sorry and repent. But, but nonetheless, this is important for us to see. It's important for us to look at because all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, and if you suffer as a Christian, you should bear that name with joy. I love that. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Once again, he's warning about imposters. Same thing he was warning them about. There'll be some amongst you that are going to come. First of all, I just want to encourage you, don't be the one amongst us, right? You don't want to be that one that pulls people and gets people to go stray away from the one true God. You don't want to be that guy pulling people over to false doctrine. You don't want to be that guy pulling people over and saying, yeah, come on, it's not that bad. I watched that happen with my closest friend that someone he was hanging out with. Come on, it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. And then I lost him. And it was hard. So I hate that stuff. So recognize it and don't be that guy and repent if you're even thinking about it. And he said, you, however, continue in the things you have learned. So what is his anecdote for this going on? Men, imposters, will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, what is the anecdote? Continue in the things which you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. That's how powerful the word of God is. That's how powerful the word of God is. That the word of God is so powerful that it's able to give you wisdom that leads you to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is theonoustos, God-breathed or inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Do you want to be equipped for every good work? It's not from reading The Purpose Driven Life, all right? It's not from reading this book or that book. It's from knowing the word of God, recognizing that he is the one who wrote it, just as Peter said. And not follow cleverly devised tales that the word of God is not written simply by man, but that God used men ultimately to be his voice, to speak to us. And every word, every scripture is theanustos or theanustos, it's God-breathed. That's what we have here. And we're supposed to reprove, rebuke, exhort with patience and instruction. 
Preach the word, be ready in of season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? What's, what's going on? What are the symptoms here? For the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. But every day is Friday, your best life now, right? All these, I mean, some of these books that I've walked in a Christian bookstore and I'm like, man, this is weird to just see paganism all over the place, you know? If I just speak this out into existence or if I manifest this reality and all this stuff that gets out there and you're like, what, we have the word of God, right? We have, we have the word of God and, and I look from it and I, and I see, you know, I, I love I love food. Uh, I'm a big, big fan of food. And sometimes I feel so bad, you know. Sometimes people have diet restrictions, and that's fine. Uh, but, but sometimes I feel so bad, you know. Like, I'll, I'll be eating this or, or that, and someone's like, yeah, I, you know, I really just like this McDonald's. And I'm just like, I'm like, ugh, man. I'm not a big Mickey D's fan. Or, you know, I'm like, man, this is like, we're just, we cooked a tri-tip. This is really good. I don't know why you're sitting there with a, you know whatever that thing is in between that burger, but it's just gross. And I'm like, man, I can't believe that, you know, that soggy mess. And I look at that and I'm like, why would you do that to yourself, you know? And I remember, it's interesting because the world offers so much uh, to people. It, it really does. It, and, it, and it's just this, this facade, right? It, it really is. There, there's, there's no oasis there that they're going after, but it, it's chasing, you know. Uh, when, you, when you smoke heroin, they call it chasing the dragon. And that's because they keep chasing it and chasing it, and they never find it. It's not, it's not there. And they just keep running after it and running after it and running after it, and they want to get back to that original high that they had. They want to get back and, and, and feel that one high that they have. And my personal view of this is that they never actually had that high. I think it's, it's literally Satan who has convinced them that there was this one time where they were really high and really happy. And they keep chasing it and chasing it and chasing it, and they chase after the wind. And they never find it until ultimately, as I've been to a number of funerals for, they get cooked. And they chase after the wind. It's one of the most heartbreaking things to me. But I see so often people trade the reality for the substance of the truth, and they trade it for these facades and the Bible talks about this when it comes to alcohol as well. Don't be drunk with wine, which causes dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit because it's a counterfeit, right? In fact, when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, what did they say? Oh, you must be drunk. Like, no, they're not drunk. It's early in the morning. What's wrong with you? They're not drunk. They're filled with the Holy Spirit because it's a counterfeit. And over and over again, Satan will give you that counterfeit. You never get the reality of which is found is Christ. So, so many people, whether it's accumulating false teachers to bring them to themselves, whether it's filling themselves up in drunkenness to push some pain away that they might have, only to have it come back in the morning, no matter what it is, over and over again, they're trading broken cisterns for streams of living water. They're like, I could have this stream of living water, but you know what? This broken cistern that comes up empty every day, that's what I want. And you go, come on, man. You try to shake them. And you're like, no, look what we have here. Look what we have here. 
I want to finish on this before we take communion. So I don't, I want to get through this. For the time will come, as I said, they will, they will endure sound doctrine. They will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Once again, turn away their ears from truth and turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. For the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who love his appearing. When it comes to Paul writing this letter, when it comes to Paul writing to the church of Ephesus, uh, specifically preaching to the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, and we see this over and over again. From those two steps there, we see him, these are my dying words to you. Timothy, who I love, Ephesus, who I've brought up as a church. And in those words, he attaches over and over again the word of God that we clearly need to make sure we understand and we keep the word of God. And we hold it in its esteem where it belongs. So that when these things come, when wolves come, when, in, when things, hardships come, we remember those words, all who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All, not some, all. So we don't wonder, why is this happening, Lord? Well, maybe go read James chapter one. And count it all joy when you endure various trials. You know, why is this happening? Oh, go read Job. What should I do with this? Go read the word of God over and over again. We're gonna take communion here with the guys. I think I ended on time. I think that was pretty cool. Um, I, I think so. Good thing John has a big sign. Now I know what Joe's looking at. So when he goes late, he just doesn't care. It's good to know. Um, but I know they're gonna be handing out communion. And I... I'm so excited. I know um, I usually do a better job of saying hi to all our live stream group, but I'm excited to see them. Uh, the ones from Texas, you might notice, it's, you know, the pulpit, for some reason, you see the legs, which is different, you know, for me personally. But um, at least if you're in Texas, you see my cowboy boots I got as a gift when I went out there. So I got that going on for me. But, um, but guys, um, I, I know it's going to be passed around uh, communion. And communion is something that I've always tried to take really seriously, especially when you read um, what took place at the Corinthian church. And I believe that was an event that took place that God ultimately used, knowing uh, in his foreknowledge that would take place to express to us the importance and the reality of what is taking place when we partake in communion together. And that's why I do believe that we in our own hearts, each and every person needs to be able to judge themselves and defend the communion table in amongst themselves even so that they are ready and understand what is happening when you partake of communion, what is taking place. And we've done camping trips for a number of years here and there with, uh, with youth groups. And a lot of times we'll, we always make sure there's a, a the majority of all kids that I know love the Lord, but then also some kids that could be ministered to and, and the gospel shared with, especially if there's cousins and so forth. 
But um, instead of doing a, an altar call or something during the trip, one of the things that I always love to do is I use the communion portion as a time to recognize the reality of taking and partaking of communion and recognize the seriousness of it as a part of the gospel. And I don't give out communion just to everybody, but we, we have the communion and we ask those after the gospel is fully preached and after um, they, they understand the fact that people literally took this in an unworthy manner in Corinth and dropped dead. They recognize the seriousness of it because I tell them, I don't want you to drop dead. I want you to know the Lord. 